This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, Urshel Barnes and her inspirational Yabonga. Life is full of paradoxes, amongst them that the greatest of those who walk among us are really the ones who are most widely celebrated. A number of them, whose uncelebrated souls who'd make my top ten from thousands of newsworthy people that I've met and interviewed in almost 40 years of journalism, include a modest German nun, Sister Elizabeth Schiller, and Titch Smith, a former sportsman who hit the gutter before a spectacular rebound in a higher-power-directed guise. They achieved great things, these two, by serving their fellow human beings, and in particular, South Africa's less fortunate. Titch is the founder of the Live Village in KwaZulu-Natal. Sister Elizabeth has given her contribution through St. Joseph's Care Project at Sizanane. Their selfless efforts have literally changed the fortunes of thousands of people. The focus of today's episode falls into the same rarefied category. So let's meet Urshel Barnes and hear her story, starting with how she arrived in South Africa. I arrived in late um, 97 and uh, had two small babies. One was two months old and one was a year and a half. I uh, grew up in West Berlin and as you know, West Berlin is a city that was divided by a wall. Um, but we were sort of the same people. I would have had direct cousins on the other side. And South Africa reminded me of, uh, of my hometown. You know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a beautiful side, which was very inviting to tourists like me, but there was also this other side that I was keen to explore. Um, I arrived to do a pilot license, um, and I wanted to do a flying license, and I planned to stay for two months and then, and then just go again. But I fell in love with the mountain, flying into the sunset, and, um, yeah, decided to buy a holiday home, come back, and then eventually stayed. I went to university in Austria and studied business and finance, and uh, then ran a hedge fund with my first husband, which was a technical futures trading approach. And, you know, it was the early 90s, and it was a very good model, and, uh, yeah, we had loyal clients, and it, was, it made a lot of money for a while. In hedge funds, did you learn much about yourself or about how the world works by making a lot of money in the financial services area? We were not trying to read the next trend um, and the next best investment, but we were just shifting the probabilities from 50-50 to 49-51. And by doing so, we invest in lots of different markets. And the biggest learning was probably that you, you don't try to second-guess markets. You just read the signals and you get, uh, have a very strict discipline on money management and allocations and you diversify. And, um, yeah, so the biggest learning was probably the, the self-discipline part. Okay, so just your typical German superwoman overachiever with a doctorate in finance who discovers Cape Town and decides she wants to become one with a mountain. Well, not quite. As I started to discover when exploring how she invests her money nowadays. But I do have also shifted a little bit to impact investments and social investments where I try to see people who want to have a commercial object but at the same time want to leave a you know, better world behind. I mean, it sounds so big, but a little bit of legacy for the environment, for people. 
just to do a little bit of good. And I also think that's the next generation's approach to investing. They, they're still keen to make money, but they also want to do it in a good way, which doesn't leave too many people disadvantaged. And that brings us to the purpose of this interview. Twenty years ago, Urshel Barnes, together with Ufa Robertson, co-founded one of the most successful HIV-related charities in South Africa called Yabonga. Thank you. It grew out of exposure to the beauty and beastly parts of Urshel's new home. I was doing six months in South Africa, six months in Austria, and used my connections to the to the financial world to do my first fundraising. I had you know, some of my own money, but I also got money from Germany and Austria to fund Yabonga's early years. What is Yabonga? Yabonga is a charity for HIV-infected children um, and their affected families. And we started 20 years ago as a purely children-oriented organization until we bumped into the problem that communities were rejecting their own children because of their HIV status. Where did the door open? Where were your eyes open towards this particular need? Well, if you, if you come to South Africa as a, as a tourist, you, you, know, you kind of want to help the neediest of the needy, the poorest of the poor, and that will always be the children. You know, they, don't, they don't have a voice. They really are victims. Um, so, so that's where I started. I wanted to help women who were supporting backyard crashes because I was very impressed by the power of the African woman. You know, the natural ability to just sweep children off the street and with no financial means at all, give them a home, look after them, and, and love them, you know, let them dance and have fun, a little bit of homework help, and, and I wanted to support that. What kind of women are these? You know, they're the regular African women that we can learn so much from. They're the traditional pillar of strength in the African culture. You know, they kept the families together in the villages when the men went into mining. They, they looked after the families when the men went into trucking and transporting and were away forever. And they're still today the grandmothers in the Eastern Cape that often see their own children go to the cities and then come back, you know, once they've lost a lot of weight and suddenly there's this room of HIV and, and their children die and the grandmothers keep the families together. So I think you've, we've seen them always and, and they're still the pillar of the community. So 20 years ago, you decided you wanted to help. How do you turn that into action? You know, helping, let me, let me just start there. I think helping is not a, it, helping always helps to one-sided. And I really, really didn't want to be the no, next new blonde neo-colonialist that comes to Africa and saves, saves black children. Um, I did from the beginning. You know, I, was, I was privately, I had just separated from my husband and I was, I was not happy. So I didn't feel like I immediately wanted to help in order to feel better. I just really felt always it was a two-way street. I got as much back as I was able to support. Um, so so much, I, I prefer to say support rather than help because I do think I, I always got a lot back. Um, so how did I decide that? I, you know, I arrived, I thought Cape Town was beautiful. It was easy to go to Clifton and enjoy the beautiful life, but, but it's hard to ignore that it has another side. So, so I tried to look at other projects, found a lot of church projects, which didn't really rock my boat that much. There was just too much um, church stuff going on <laughs> for my taste. And, uh, and then found this one woman who was running a backyard crash and thought, okay, well, I'll start with her. And then I met my partner, Ufa Robertson, who um, you know, grew up in the anti-apartheid times in South Africa and had a very strong connection to communities. She used to teach herself, and she was teaching in teachers' colleges 
So she really had the knowledge um, and love for her country. And I guess what I could add was a little bit of can-do approach of newly arrived, still thinking we can change things. And together we, we've been working for the last 20 years. Did you start, as you say, with one backyard crash and, and the progression to where you are today? So I did one, and then as I was supporting the next one, I met Ufa and persuaded her to do 10 with me. So that was our, our benchmark. And along the way, I don't know, remember it was seven or eight, um, number seven, it was, it was the late 90s where, where the government was still saying, let's eat beetroot and sweet potato. There was huge stigma attached, and, and we just felt, well, we, we can't change that, but we, we do have to help the children. And then as a consequence, we built an orphanage for HIV-infected um, babies. Um, that was actually a mistake. We, we found that a lot of the mothers were then dropping the children on our doorstep, and the children were used to being sick and poor, but they were not used to not having their mummies. So actually we weren't helping at all. We had the best intentions, but we weren't really having a positive impact. So then we thought about it, and we said, well, actually what's needed is to keep the mothers alive. I think civil organizations like ours have always played a huge role in, in South Africa. Um, they have always filled the gap where government um, could have done more. And, you know, I still feel very German. I, you know, I feel a guest in South Africa. I love my life there, but I don't think I should judge the bigger political context. What I can see is that schools work really, really hard to give children an education. It's very hard for those teachers and headmistresses and headmasters in the in the township schools to educate a child. You know, they, they have so many challenges from multiple languages, from um, still children not being able to go to school, being called away. So I do have respect of how they, how they manage the school life. For its part, Yabonga works to support the state's efforts at both the preschool level of children and with those pupils who attend classes. Here's how they do it. The children would usually come from very um, poor and dysfunctional family environments. So they would wake up at home, but, you know, home will be usually somebody drunk in the family and in um, a very neglected environment. They would then go to school, and after school they would go straight to the community mother, who is in a walkable distance from the school. When the child arrives at the community mother, he can or she can start doing a homework or do a little bit of a drawing until the rest of the group arrives. A group is usually 25 children, and they will then start quite a structured afternoon program. The program will usually start with a check-in, you know, how's your day been, how are you feeling today, and depending on the day, this will be slightly more contemplative, or it could be dancing and um, slightly more fun and upbeat. The afternoon will always include a session which is uh, psychosocial support, so it will be a support group dedicated to a certain topic. A topic could be, um, let's say, around HIV, talking about HIV in the family. It could be um, talking about a loss in the family, somebody who has died and, and coping strategies, how to deal with that. It could be around the rights of the children, you know, what are my rights, how, can I, how should I be treated in a family, just very basic values that the children would not know if they've been in, a, in an abusive and dysfunctional family environment. How do you fund all of this? Our funding um, comes from the uh, European NGOs that I funded over the last 20 years. 
So we have an NGO in Austria, in Germany, in the UK and in Holland. And any pound that we raise goes directly to the programs because we have the admin funded through a more closer family environment ourselves. And also we try to um, get co-financing from the governments for private funds that are raised. So, so these funds are really leveraged um, very highly. And then we get um, some money from governments, a global fund as the European funding, USAIDs, um, and also some departments in South Africa, such as the City of Cape Town, Department of Social Services, and also some South African corporates, some social foundations and private funders. So there are the community mothers. How many of them are there? We have 42 community mothers who look after 25 children each. So in total, it's a pretty easy number of 1,000 children at the moment. And how do you select the mothers and the children? So the mothers are usually recruited from our circles of support, which are support groups that we run for adults. And we um, build a relationship with these women and get to know their home environment. They have to have a home that they make available for these children. Often it is a, a shack um, adjacent to their RGP homes, or it could be that they just empty a lounge. And uh, they need to be a mummy and they need to want to look after these children, cook for them and just be a, a sort of a foster mum. They will get supported in psychosocial support and academic support um, through our gap year students and the child counsellors. How does that work? So these would have been usually children that grow up through our programs, you know, sometimes they start when they're nine or when they're 13, and then they would uh, finish school, usually hopefully via matric, and then just not have figured out what they want to do afterwards. So we have a year-long program where we train these children in leadership camps and help them figure out what their strengths are and what they want to do after school. At the same time, we pay them a little stipend to do homework with our children and to look after the younger ones. And they usually um, really rise to the occasion because they become role model for the younger ones. They're proud that they have, they have graduated from being a child that's being looked after and that they can turn into the person that now looks after the younger ones. And it really is very touching to see and it's a, it's a, it's a win-win. And the selection of the children themselves? The children um, all come from the communities where our Yabonga women live themselves. So we have very strong connections to the local clinics um, where the HIV medication, the ARVs are handed out. So often we would be referred to children that are on medication or, or where the clinic staff knows that family members have been affected recently. Um, we also work um, with the schools where we run a lot of awareness and training around HIV and AIDS and also support programs for, let's say, girls from 14 to 16 around sugar daddy issues where girls have relationships with older men who are often infected with HIV just, you know, for a pair of shoes or for a lift to town. Has it changed your life, being involved in this? I think it's just part of me. I don't think it has changed me. It's always made me very... Um, thoughtful about how diverse life is and, and, and about my own judgments of what is happiness and what is content and, um, and what am I assuming about things that make a life worthwhile because I pick up so many things that I 
that I benefit from. You know, like if I if I watch an afternoon program happening, just as an example, they I can walk in unannounced into a group where you can just cut the air with a knife because you can just feel they're talking about deep issues of losing family members, disease, and and just deep stuff. And then and then boof, somebody claps their hand and they go outside and they sing and they dance with only the power of their own voices and and they clap and they drum and and they are deeply happy and they're able to release all this heavy psychological stuff through the power of their own movement and release in their own bodies and I watch that and I'm like wow I can learn so much from that so it hasn't really changed me but it's been part of my own development and maintenance and keeping myself normal whatever that means <laughs> Normal? Well, not by most yardsticks. Inspirational, yes. Exceptional, also yes. Urshel Barnes and her four dozen township house mothers of Yabonga have been quietly making a difference in thousands of young lives for two decades. That's something worth celebrating, but hardly normal. This has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.